It's perhaps a, a bit inaccurate to uh, call this sermon, or a sermon on Romans chapter 7. Um, it's actually the second half of last week's uh, topic, and I was asked to uh, preach a sermon on, on uh, real self-worth and how we find dignity and self-worth. And uh, we started out by talking about sin and redemption and real self-worth. And in that message, which is available, as you know, on YouTube and also on Sermon Audio, uh, we established certain basic biblical points. And I'm just going to review those very quickly here this afternoon. The first one is, if someone asks, where can one see a man and a woman enjoying the character and the blessing of a real and unhindered sense of self-worth or dignity, the answer is in the garden before the fall. That's where you can see that. Secondly, the sad and inconvenient truth is that that couple that we can see in the garden before the fall, having that dignity and self-worth, so filled with those things, um, decided to trade it all away in the bargain of fulfilling their own will and desires. And in it, they lost both their dignity and their self-worth. They exchanged it for guilt and for shame. And they did that not only for themselves, but for all their offspring. So for all mankind since that time. The third thing we said was that ever since then, anyone who takes an honest and realistic look at him or herself, anyone who carefully assesses all the motives and all the thoughts and all the words that come out of their mouth and all the actions that they undertake, have to confess that if self-worth and human dignity rests in perfection, or perfect sinlessness, there's none righteous, no, not one, as God says. Um, no man, no woman can say that they have been without sin if they honestly face the reality of who they are. The fourth point we made was that in order to avoid the gloom and the hopelessness that sin imposes on the human soul and on the conscience, Men and women have tried everything from deceit to denial. Sadly, some are trying to find self-worth in the mutilation of their bodies right now even, and by trying to be something they're not, not recognizing where their real problem rests and trying to find some sort of dignity and self-worth in a place where it can never be found. And, and yet they're trying, and, and they're honest and earnest in that attempt. And there are those who are willing to take advantage of that, even for their own profit. The fifth thing we saw is that rather than stooping to this dishonest and fruitless effort to, to restore human dignity and self-worth, one can find a satisfying and a blessed answer to the dilemma in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sixth thing we established was that God in love sent his only begotten son into the world so that men and women in any age might be redeemed from sin and death and not be simply restored to their former dignity before the fall, but to 
an even more elevated state in Christ, from which one can draw a rich and blessed sense of self-worth that isn't really grounded in self, but it's grounded in Christ. And then seventhly, we said that when one's life is defined by the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, it takes on a whole new complexion. Life is completely different when our lives are are defined by those things. Um, Suddenly, one finds him or herself loved with an everlasting love. That's what many people, that's what they struggle with in trying to find a sense of self-worth and and dignity. Their answer is, nobody loves me and nobody cares about me. Well, in Christ, you find an everlasting love and, and a love that will not let you go, a love that lifts you up to glory, a love that is so satisfying that it promises um, joy and happiness and righteousness, and this love will not rest until it fulfills all those things in those who are loved. And so you find there that that thing that the the human heart's starving for. And then lastly, in establishing these these principles, we said that here is the real hope for finding self-worth. That God, having redeemed us through Jesus Christ, is making us worthy of our calling and fulfilling every resolve for good in us so that we may be glorified or so that he may be glorified in us and we may be glorified in him. That's the promise of the word. So all of that we handled last, handled last week in some detail. But that leaves a lingering issue. And the lingering issue is this. As wonderful as it is that you and I are redeemed in the blood of the Lamb, we still sin. And so how do we deal with this? Although everything that I've just said is so about what becomes the believer, there's this issue because the elect who enjoy all the promises of this elevated estate still have to deal with the weakness of the flesh and the inner struggle with sin. Paul referred to himself as the chief or the foremost of sinners and the least of saints. And as we've just read in Romans chapter 7, Paul had no illusions about his own struggles with sin, even as an apostle. So even though he's in this position of an apostle, has this high office in the church of Christ, unique office, one that that only a few men ever had, he still has to confess that he has the struggle with the flesh and with sin. And when he spoke, when he speaks of himself, he says, says John Gill, that his meaning is that he was the first in quality or the greatest and chiefest of sinners, not only of those that are saved, but of all men, Jews or Gentiles. And this he said, not hyperbolically, not out of modesty, but from a real sense or apprehension he had of himself and his sins, which made exceeding, which were made exceeding sinful to him. So he had a sense of his sin in the past, 
but he also had a sense of the struggle that was still going on in him now. So how does a Christian who sins and finds him or herself sinning from time to time, and falling and stumbling and, and struggling with sin in the flesh, how do they keep themselves from despair in that situation? So first we talk about the nature of the struggle. As the question becomes, how does a Christian keep him or herself from becoming overwhelmed in the battle that Paul described there in Romans 7? Um, that struggle that he talks about where um, he says, the good that I want to do, I, I don't do. And, and the things that I do not want to do, those I find myself doing. And he's really describing a real a wrestling match there. He ends up by saying, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive. Um, and that reality, as Paul describes it here in Romans 7, you see where it leads him. He comes to verse 24, and what does he say? He cries out and says, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? He, he talks about the struggle, and the more he faces it within himself, the more he feels the anguish of it, and he cries out, Who will deliver me from this? I'm a wretched man in that way. Calvin says, He teaches us by this cry. That is, Paul teaches us by this cry that we are not only to struggle with our flesh, but also with continued groaning to bewail within ourselves and before God our unhappy condition. But he asks not by whom he was to be delivered as one in doubt, like unbelievers who understand not that there is but one real deliverer, but it is the voice of one panting and almost fainting because he does not find immediate help as he longs for. In other words, he's saying, I don't want to be this way. I know this is not the way I should be. When am I going to be delivered from this, from this struggle that I have in the flesh and in the body in this world? When will I be delivered? And it's sort of a cry in that spirit. And at that moment, when Paul cries out like that, he's on the edge and right here, at that moment of guilty frustration, anybody, including Paul, stands between fainting and falling into depression and despair or clutching hold of that gospel-generated faith and hope that makes room for repentance and thereby for restoration and finally for joy. So here he is on the edge, and on the one side, this is a pivotal moment. On the one side, if one looks to self at that moment when you're ready to cry, oh, wretched man that I am, or wretched woman that I am, at that moment, if you look to self and you begin reviewing your resolves and going over and saying... I said I was never going to do this again. I said I wasn't going to be tempted by this again. I said I was going to resist this sin. I said I was going to overcome this sin. And you look and see that you didn't, you tripped, you fell, you were tempted again. If you, if you focus on that and on purpose, good intentions, if one dwells on the failures and the weaknesses exhibited in us by the flesh, weaknesses exhibited again, if one looks for victory and triumph triumph from within, 
or seeks to judge things based on, on his or her own faithfulness, there will be sorrow and gnashing of teeth. That'll be the result. If that's where you look, if you're at that moment, that pivotal moment when you realize, I'm doing the things I do not want to do, and I'm not doing what I want to do, and, and what a wretched thing I am because of that. And then you begin to focus on the, the weakness and the frailty and the shortcomings and so on. At that moment, you're just going to fall deeper and deeper away into a sense of despair and frustration. And I want to be very careful here. Because it's not being suggested by Paul or me that we should ignore all that. When I say we're at that pivotal point and we, we realize all those things, I'm not saying we shouldn't think about them at all and we should ignore them. Um, that we should just pretend like we have no sin or, or take this battle lightly. No, it's vital that we face it and that we do so realistically and that we even go ahead and cry out like Paul does here, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's the key moment. When we make that cry, who will deliver me from this? We don't look at ourselves and say, well, I've tried and I'm failing. and I can't do it. and There's no hope for me because I'm no better than I ever was. You don't look there. You look to Christ. As we saw last week, all pretense, all denial, <clears throat> all attempts at deception, none of them lead to a confident sense of self-worth. It just doesn't work. If you just try to say, well, I tried my best, I failed, I'm going to try better this time, and now I'm going to find the strength to do it, and I'm going to, going to really bull myself up and stiffen my, my shoulders and really get into this, you're not going to find it. And anxious, you're going to find nothing but an anxious, guilty, worrisome, finger-crossed hope. That's what it's going to be. If you're looking to yourself. If I look to myself not to fall into sin, that's what it is. I hope I won't do it. I'm, I'm really going to try this time. And I'm determined to reform this time. And boy, I hope it works. If that's the hope anyone has, it won't produce any more than it ever has. Things will never get better just by wishing they will. Now, having said that, we still want to say, but we don't want a turn away from facing up to sin and guilt. We want to come face to face with that. But we want to move to the other side of that edge. And, and the, the issue involved here is the very next step. Paul did not, like Judas, say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death and go out and hang himself, did he? He didn't do that. Instead... He looked to the one who was hanged on the cross for his sin and pressed on toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he didn't look to himself. He didn't look to his failures. He admitted who he was and then threw himself on Christ and on the grace of Christ and on the love of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says this in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. And everything Paul did from that point was by looking to Christ. He rested in the truth that he wrote to Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He said to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's my trust. How does Paul go on? How does Paul keep serving the Lord when he confesses what he does in Romans chapter 7? I find this law and it's in me and I don't do what I know I should do and I do things I know I shouldn't do. I'm a wretched man. How does he go on? He goes on because he knows that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that struggle is the evidence that he's the chief of them. And because he's the chief of them, he's the one for whom Christ died. He's the one for whom Christ came. He's the one whom Jesus came to save. And so he rests in that. And it's this truth that allows the believer to face and confess sin. This is the foundation of that gospel-generated faith and hope that makes room for repentance and makes room for restoration and makes room for joy, as I referred to a moment ago. It's knowing that we're secure in Christ that allows us to say, oh, wretched man that I am. I could say that without falling into despair because Christ came to save wretched men. And so I'm just what I need to be in order to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's not Paul, it's Christ. Paul can confess the very nature of this battle before men and God because of Christ. Just think about this. Um, I'll just try to share this story really quickly. Um, I've shared it in other contexts, but uh, I was attending a series of meetings once, and uh, there was a lecture, and it was about um, husbands and wives. And it was in a big church, big, huge church, with several thousand members in Tennessee. And the person who was giving the lecture um, wanted to give an illustration of a wife doing the wrong thing. And so he thought it would be fine in the context to use the pastor's wife as an example of the woman who did the wrong thing. And so he did that, and everybody that was in attendance realized the spirit of it. You know, she wouldn't be that kind of woman, so it was fine to accuse her of being that because she wouldn't be like that, and that was the whole point. But she 
was horribly offended and did not attend another moment of that conference because he dared to cast her in that light like she would do something like that. That reflected to me pride in her, and I could understand it, but I also thought it was sad to see that, that spirit of pride. Imagine if you were an apostle, and to stand up before the church at Rome and say, you know what I am? I'm a wretched man. And here's what goes on with me. I know what I'm supposed to do. And when Paul says that, he's saying it like nobody else. Because he's an apostle. I know what I'm supposed to do. But I don't do it. And I know the things I'm not supposed to do. And I do those things. And he's making free confession of this before the church for all generations. How could he do that? Because it's not Paul. It's Christ. And that's what he's pointing us to. I don't want you to look at me as an apostle and think this is how you live righteously in the sight of God and man. He's saying, look at me as an apostle and see me, I'm just a sinner like every other man. And the only righteousness is the righteousness to be found in Christ Jesus. And that's the way he puts it when he says here in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is how I'll be delivered is what he's saying in that verse. This is how, who will deliver me? This is how I will be delivered. Not by Paul, not by my Pharisaic virtue, not by works of any kind on my part, but by Christ and his grace. And being renewed in the strength of his faith, he's renewed in his calling, and he doesn't despair. But uh, storms heaven by prayer for the grace and the strength necessary to continue the battle, resting in Christ alone for the victory. So to summarize, the believer, finding that he or she is in a struggle with the flesh and and spirit, doesn't give up, doesn't sink to gloom and wallow in shame and guilt, but seizes the promises of God in Christ, confesses, repents, and does so with confidence. And we're reminded in that, There's another important aspect to all of this, and we find it right here. Repentance and faith in Christ bring forgiveness, but there may still be what is sometimes termed the natural consequences of one's sin. The consequences need to be dealt with, though, in the same way, or they can lead to depression. Just that this is the fallout from what I've done. I know I'm forgiven, but there's still consequences to what I did. Well, how do we deal with those consequences? It's the same thing. We leave them with Christ. David saw both immediate and long-term consequences for his sin with Bathsheba. He didn't just... um, He didn't let those things, however, I should say, uh, put him in doubt of God's forgiveness. But he accepted, and he accepted those things, and he dealt with them for what they were, 
And in his better moments, he prayed that God would show mercy even in those matters where this is the consequence of my sin. All right, now I've been forgiven for it, but now this is the, the, the fallout from it, and I'm trusting the Lord to even sanctify that fallout. Now, the believer, having confessed and repented, doesn't look then for retribution or punishment. He or she trusts that all the just retribution for his or her sin was carried to the cross and endured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that also keeps us from despair. Yes, I've fallen into some sin again, and I realize I've said something maybe I shouldn't have said or given an impression I shouldn't have given. Now, what do I do with that sin? Well, I confess it, and I deal with it, and I pray that the Lord will help me to overcome it and make whatever amends I have to make. And then I trust that even though there may be some fallout, that any retribution, any punishment was carried by Christ. And I'm not carrying that part of it because Christ has carried it all. As Isaiah 53 says, he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Um, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God the Father, against whom we have sinned, from whom we have turned, and whose justice must be just satisfied, he has laid on Christ, his own Son, the sins of all his elect ones, which are, as, uh, as it were, collected together and made one bundle and burden of, and therefore expressed in the singular number iniquity there in Isaiah 53, and laid on Christ, and were born by him, even all the sins of all God's elect, a heavy burden this, which none but the mighty God could bear, says Gil. And because that's true, he or she looks not just for forgiveness, but for restoration. And that's beautifully illustrated in, for us in the case of King David. If we just pause for a moment and ask the question, who's fallen further than King David? Who in the history of men has fallen further than King David did in his sin with Bathsheba? Um, and yet the fact that he had fallen so far did not keep him from humble boldness, a humble boldness born out of faith that enabled him to cry out to his God, which I believe at the time he did, he had Christ in view. Not specifically, but the Messiah in view. And he begins his great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, with these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David says, I know what I am. I'm a wretched man. And who will deliver me? Well, my only hope is God. And on what basis? On the basis of his mercy and his grace. And David first appeals here to the mercy of God. 
his love and his promise of redeeming grace. And with those things in mind and heart, he can then freely confess who he is. Lord, I'm coming to you, trusting in your mercy and love, and here's what I am. I am a sinner and I know it. And notice how that stands in stark contrast with the things that you hear men and women saying today as they try to justify and excuse their bad behavior. Can you imagine if this psalm started out by saying, Lord, this is not really me. I'm better than this. Uh, This this isn't who I am. So forgive me. Can you imagine if the psalm started that way? It doesn't sound that way at all, does it? It's just the opposite. Here's who I am. I'm a wretched man, and I can't deliver myself. So, Lord, I'm throwing myself on your mercy, on your grace, on your love to me through Jesus Christ and looking for forgiveness. And notice, too, how David doesn't seek to strike up any bargains. He doesn't offer any reasons to be excused. He doesn't even suggest that he might work off his guilt or his debt. He leaves it all with the goodness and the love of God. And I hope you can see this in our times fleeting here. But do you understand how, how favored David considered himself to be with God here? To be so loved as to be able to trust in the promised forgiveness of God. Now, this doesn't at all suggest that the, 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 the Christian may sin with impunity. Paul says that we don't sin, that grace may abound. But it does suggest that with the Lord there is real forgiveness. Doting fathers and mothers, they, they sometimes so indulge their children as to encourage them in unlawful and sinful behavior, even at the highest levels. But the Lord loves his children too much for that, and he promises to chasten every child he loves. David says in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And then Ephesians 1, he says in verse 7, In him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, just to conclude, there's a sort of forgiveness that comes short in that it doesn't bring restoration. You may have some situations like that in your own life where someone has offended you in some way and they've asked for your forgiveness and you have forgiven them, but the relationship is not the same and and will never be the same because there's forgiveness but not restoration. In Psalm 51, you find that David was bold enough in his faith Not just to ask for forgiveness, but to seek happy, happy, joyful restoration and communion with the Lord. He says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When David says, let me hear joy and gladness, he's referring to the sort of joy that comes with a welcome reception. Have you ever had that situation where you're maybe coming home and there's a joyful reception? I'm sure when Mercy comes home from Brazil, she'll be happy to come home and she'll be happily received and everybody will be excited to see her. That's what David is asking for here. Lord, I've broken every one of your commandments in this sin. I have committed adultery. I have murdered. I have used your name in vain. I've gone into your house and worshipped you with the blood of a man's life on my hands. Please, wash me. Make me whiter than snow. And make me feel welcome. Holy, fully, joyfully welcome in your presence again. Beloved, if that doesn't give the believer a sense of self-worth and dignity and esteem, I don't know what could. Because that's the promise that belongs to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to offend. We all sin. I'm going to sin against the Lord again and again. But I don't, as long as I'm in this flesh, but I don't look at who I am. I look at who Christ is and what he has done for me. And that's what every believer does. And we look to be received with joy and with thanksgiving. He talks about his bones being broken here. And it's a beautiful picture in the Hebrew. If you just thought of all your bones being broken, what would happen to me if I was standing here and suddenly all my bones were broken and shattered? I'd just fall into a lump on the ground, right? (laughs) And that's what David says, that's what you did. You broke all my bones, so I was just a lump on the ground. Now I'm asking you to restore health and joy to the bones you've broken. He looked to the Lord to do that for him because he knew the Lord loved him. And that's where we draw our sense of self-worth and dignity from. Not who we are in ourselves, but what we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what is ours in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we would not justify our sin. We would not uh, ever say, let us sin that grace may abound. Lord, such a thing is abhorrent to us. But Father, we are so thankful for this confidence that we have that though we sin, We have forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are delivered from this body of sin by him. We thank you. We praise you for it. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone who is struggling with these things, where to find love, where to find a sense of self-worth, that, Lord, they'll stop looking for things in this world and within themselves And look instead to their creator, to their redeemer, to their savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And find, Lord, peace for their troubled souls. Lord, grant that grace to them. And for all of us who are in Christ, 
let us be thankful that we are so joyously welcomed into your presence because of him. And may we glorify and praise you for it in Jesus' name, that name which is above every name. Amen.